This is Simply Real Estate with Todd C. Slater on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Good afternoon and welcome to Simply Real Estate right here on News Talk 1010 and I'm your host, Todd C. Slater. So we've got a great program for you this week. In fact, we've got a guest that's going to be joining us in a little while and he is accountant George Dubay from BDO, and we're going to be talking about real estate and taxes. So we've got lots of information to cover in a little while. Of course, I want to talk about a a market that is struggling right now, and it's not struggling for dollars, but it's struggling for sales, and that's the Kitchener-Waterloo market. And of course, how many of you remember the question that I asked you last week? Before we finished our last show, I asked, What is the difference between being rich and being wealthy? What would you prefer to be, rich or wealthy? So I wanted to talk about that this week because to me, there is a big difference. Now, if you look up in the dictionary, there's only a little bit of a difference. Every time you look up the definition of wealth, it will say something to do with riches. And then, of course, if you look up riches, of course, it says something to do with wealth. But if you want to analyze it, a lot of people will deem themselves to be rich when they have a good substantial income. What if you're making $500,000 a year as a president? You could consider yourself rich. You've got good disposable income. You can have a nice house and you can have a nice car. But when we take a look at creating wealth, wealth is something that can last for the generations. In fact, the richest people in the world have generated their money by wealth. And that's long-term investment, things that can be sustained through an up-and-down market. Of course, in real estate, we always hear about the great crashes that could, may, and have happened. And when we take a look at real estate crashes, most people will never sell their real estate. It doesn't matter the fact that if they turn around and the market gets adjusted by 30%. The idea of selling real estate has never made any sense, both for yourself unless you're moving because it's a family decision. But when you sell real estate, you're giving up the potential of the future. And when we take a look at it as an investment, this is one of the best investments known to man. As time goes on, somebody will pay down that debt and you can work with leverage. So when we take a look at wealth, you can create wealth, but you can create wealth for your next generation. And this is one of the things that we have seen in the past where a lot of the wealth in this world is considered generational. And this is one of the things that we like to focus on right here at Simply Real Estate. Now, again, we were talking a little bit last week about the market and what's going on in the market right now. Well, the GTA is looking at having up to about 100,000 transactions in the year 2015. So this year, 100,000 thousand transactions. Folks, that's a lot of real estate. In fact, it's a record. We've never seen real estate traded at this rate. But you know, when I think about it, I keep thinking to myself, okay, so where does all of these transactions come from? Where is it stemming from? Well, if we take a look in the downtown core, we keep seeing more and more buildings going up. In 2014, we had 50,000 units, condominium, condominium units, close. Now, that's a lot of properties, 50,000. Who bought them? Well, we had investors buy them. And of course, we had some of our new Canadians buy them. With Canada increasing its immigration, we've got over 100,000 people coming into the GTA every single year. So again, we've got to make room for them. And by doing so, we've got to create more properties. Or what we end up having, of course, is a shortage of properties. And this is what has driven some of the marketplace up. Think about the spring market. You know, 
we've had a lot of conversations recently about what's going on in the marketplace. And we talk about multiple offers and the fact that somebody can actually sell the property and they get 75 bids on the property. 75 people want that exact property. Why? Is it that great a house or is it that great a neighborhood? Or is it the fact that there's just not that much inventory and this is creating the demand? So when you have a lack of inventory, you create the demand, which forces prices up. Now, again, when we talked last week about the Vancouver market, we've seen some incredible numbers coming through across the boards. And we don't know exactly where that market is going to start to level off. But the truth be told, we take a look at that market and they just don't have enough inventory. And again, everybody wants to be in that market. Toronto's facing a little bit of that same dilemma. Again, people want to have detached homes. And right now, the biggest availability is condominiums. So what will happen to the market? Well, we may just see an adjustment in the condominium market, but yet the detached homes will continue to proceed upwards. Now, I mentioned earlier that I'm going to talk about the Kitchener-Waterloo market, because this one, this one is the one that's a little bit, I'm not going to say concerning, because it actually is showing that Kitchener actually is emulating a bit of Toronto's growth. Right now, we know that this past month, in October, there was 435 sales. Now, that's actually down about 9.5% from the year before. So we've actually had less sales, so almost 10%. Last year, in October, there was 480 sales in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. For those of you that are not aware of where that is, it's just a short drive, about 40 minutes, depending on the traffic, west of the GTA. Now, when we start thinking about marketplaces, we have to remember some of the things that drive marketplaces. And by the way, if you're just tuning in, I'm Todd C. Slater, and you're listening to Simply Real Estate. And we're talking about the marketplace, and I want to introduce the Kitchener-Waterloo market, because it's, again, it's one of those growing marketplaces. We know that the population's topping in around 600,000 people, which makes it a very viable area. Now, we've seen huge growth as far as corporations. You know, BlackBerry was not the only, um, I call it BlackBerry, but RIM was not the only employer in Kitchener-Waterloo. In fact, there's way more employers that most people don't even know about. It's a huge hub for the tech industry. But there's lots of manufacturing out there. We've got good growth, you know, fantastic universities. So looking at a marketplace like this, we would think naturally there should be more growth. But if they're not keeping up with the demand, what we see is we have we see less houses on the market because some people want to stay. The builders aren't quite growing at the same speed, let's say, as a Toronto market. And yet we see sales going down. But at the same time, we see increases in value. Almost 10% this year, the Kitchener-Waterloo market will go up in appreciation. Now, that is on par basically with the Richmond Hill, Vaughan, Toronto area. So for those of you that think that, you know, Kitchener-Waterloo is just a sleepy town, I beg to differ. It actually has grown to a point where it's a major, major metropolitan area. So when we take a look at some of these, these uh, numbers, it's pretty staggering. You know, one of the things that I notice, and I always want to make sure that we dissect a marketplace. Remember, real estate isn't just real estate. We have definitions in real estate. A lot of it is condominium high-rises, 
condominium townhomes, semi-detached, detached. These are all definitions of what a property is. So a detached home means that you're not attached to anybody. You own the land, you own the property. When you look at a semi-detached, that means you're conjoined. You're joined with another property, normally with one shared wall, and you own part of the lot and they own the other part of the lot. When you're dealing with a townhome, you could have a neighbor on either side attached to your walls. You could be an outer unit, which makes you feel like a semi-detached. And of course, apartment condominiums, these are the ones that the builders are popping up all the time. And these are the buildings that we're seeing going 20, 30, 40 stories. Now, when we take a look at these properties, all of the marketplace will have so many of these being built. But interestingly enough, in the Kitchener-Waterloo market, we've seen a huge downturn on the number of properties coming into the market for sale that are even the semi-detaches. This year alone, it looks like there's going to be 23% less sales in the semi-detached market. So the question has to be asked, why? Why is this happening? Well, more importantly, I think what people have figured out is that they bought affordably. It's a good marketplace. They bought smart. So why move? You know, markets don't always have to trade up. Some people can turn around and actually own a home for a long period of time. I know it's kind of a foreign concept unless you look at your grandparents or your parents. But when we take a look at a marketplace, there's no reason for people to be moving, you know, every couple of years. And in an area like the Kitchener-Waterloo area, once people have bought, they want to stay put. It's been affordable. They bought maybe a few years ago. So when we see inventory drop in the sales, so when we see the sales numbers go down, it's not because the market's bad. It's actually the market's quite good. It means that they want to stay put where they are. And when we see the prices go up almost 10% year over year, you know people still want to live there. So whenever we analyze a marketplace, keep in mind, there's a lot of variables in it. If you start looking at a property yourself, keep in mind where you're buying. So if you're looking in the outer areas, if you're looking in the downtown core, wherever you're looking, take a look at the numbers. Are there a lot of properties for sale or very few? If there's very few, why is that? Is it because people don't want to move? And then if we look at prices, if prices continue to go up in some areas, it means people want to live there. And again, I think the, they, they call it the KW area, but I'll call it Kitchener-Waterloo. If we take a look at that marketplace, it's a very strong marketplace. It's a great area for employment. It's got great hospitals, great schooling, great universities. And again, it's an area that's going to remain popular for a very long time. Now, of course, when we take back a look at Toronto, we realize that we've got some staggering numbers. But will these sustain themselves over the next few years? Well, I think the biggest question we have to ask ourselves is, what is interest rates? What are they going to do? Are we going to see the interest rates go up? Will it have a huge adverse effect? Now, remember, if interest rates go up and you've locked into a five-year mortgage, this gives you ample time to pay down the property. Five years on paying down any 25-year amortization means that you're probably paying about 15% of the mortgage off. Now, this is not a bad thing. Freeing up the actual equity in the property is very, very important. As you continue to go on the journey of home ownership, you want to make sure that you've got a good balance of your income, the actual value of the property, and the debt on the property. These are things that are very, very important. And if you're smart when you're buying, you're not overpaying for something. Remember, 
always buy within your means. Don't look at something and say you're kind of max, you've maxed yourself out, you've maxed out your payments. Don't go there. The best advice I can give you right now is buy affordably. If you have to do something, do some repairs yourself, do it. It makes more sense for you to create the actual equity in the property than buying somebody else's improvements. It's a great idea. When we come back after the break, we're going to be joined by George Dubay, and I look forward to you listening to a lot of what he has to say about taxes. This is Simply Real Estate with Todd C. Slater on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Now, more of Simply Real Estate with host Todd C. Slater on News Talk 1010. And welcome back. So in the studio today is actually a a great gentleman who knows so much about the tax structure in real estate, and it's my guest, George Doobie. And George, thanks for joining us to to let everybody know, of course, you are a partner at BDO, uh, you are a CPA CA, and you've got years and years of experience in tax uh, the taxation in real estate. So thanks for joining us today. Very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So George, you know, you and I have uh, obviously had conversations over the years and we talk a lot about real estate and how people can actually save money. And, you know, I think there's a little bit of a misconception out there when people actually own their own principal residence. Is there tax breaks or something that people can do to save some taxes when they actually own their own principal residence? Certainly in having the principal residence, there are certain um, abilities, if you will, or some modest, very modest tax uh, advantages. Um, The primary one people give thought to, and and in and of itself is fantastic, is what we call the principal residence exemption, which gives uh, the homeowner the ability to have their house, if they're regularly and habitually using it as a a quote-unquote a normal house, if you will, and upon selling that property, provided certain conditions are met, they will be able to realize that gain on a tax-free basis. Um, One of the primary conditions is that they don't have a second house, which often can be thought of as a cottage, for example, or alternatively, um, uh, two spouses recently getting together, if you will, and they they have two homes from um, prior life, if you will, before getting together. So, so we're basically talking about a primary residence, and for clarification, so we're, we we look at capital gains tax. Obviously, that if people are 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 able to watch their values go up over a period of time, and they sell the property, so there's no tax implication. Is that correct? Properly done, that's absolutely correct. And the vast majority of cases, uh, there would not be any taxes. So when you say properly done, because you know that sounds like a bit of a red flag, and and, and I have to you know maybe clarify it a little. Um, are there errors where people can make a mistake and that they do owe taxes on their primary residence? Common areas or misadventures, perhaps, is, again, perhaps there's two houses coming into a marriage or um, a joint ownership of a particular property, and they claim uh, the principal residence exemption on one of these prior properties or they've sold a cottage. Uh, one other area that we see people get into trouble with is that they're using home office expenses, for example, and they have uh, a business within the house. 
Revenue Canada will certainly allow for someone to have uh, a home office. That's not a problem. They want to see it that it's an ancillary. It's a small purpose, if you will, to owning a home as compared to 70% of the home, for example, is being used as that home business. Now it's more of a question, hey, this looks like it's really more of a business asset, not a principal residence. Right. So you see, because part part of the concern, I think that you know people should be aware of, obviously, and you've you, you've you know mentioned it now that you know Revenue Canada, when people run a business out of their home, you know, do you see people they try to maximize their uh, their write offs? I mean, you've got to, uh, you know, as, as as a leading accountant in real estate taxes, I mean, you must see people sit there and come to you and say, hey, George, you know, my mortgage payments fifteen hundred dollars a month. Can't I write that off? I mean, d- does it get to that level? Absolutely. Most people are looking to receive the maximum deduction possible while still keeping within certainly uh, their legal rights, if you will, within what uh, Revenue Canada defines as the rules or more appropriately what the Income Tax Act defines as those rules. And they want to push the limit to some degree. The challenge from the accountant's perspective, if you will, is that some of these rules within the Income Tax Act are relatively speaking subjective. There's not a clear and precise definition for everything. It's not black and white always. So now, what would be a reasonable interpretation? What would court cases suggest? What are the opinions of Revenue Canada? And that'll help us guide to providing advice, but ultimately uh, our client is going to make that final decision provided that it's still within our opinion within the rules. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And by the way, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Simply Real Estate. I'm your host, Todd C. Slater, and joining me is George Duby, and he's partner at BDO. We're talking about accounting and real estate um, when we take a look at taxes. And George, you know, again, I think a lot of people sometimes, um, you know, they obviously want to write off as much of their income as possible, you know, if they're salaried. But um, when, when we take a look at people that are running their own businesses, Again, is there, is there a rule of thumb? Do, do they look at a, perhaps a 5% or 10%? Um, you know, what, is there a rule of thumb out there for people? I'm not so sure that there's what I would call a global rule of thumb. However, we or myself, maybe I'll say it in that fashion, and as a result, my team will frequently see a 10 to a 15% uh, use of the home as a legitimate number. Uh, often it'll be one-eighth or even one-tenth using kind of the number of rooms in the house methodology of allocating the business versus uh, personal use. But if I can kind of just sidestep it slightly, it's also to say that may be the general breakdown of deducting, for example, uh, utilities and property taxes, insurance, etc. But a variety of people will want to go one step further and say, hey, I've got this mortgage on the property. I'm paying this large amount of interest. Is there a way of getting a larger deduction out of that beyond what I'm going to do for the home office? And is it still within Revenue Canada's rules? And so we're often trying to help them structure to get more and more of that traditional mortgage as a deductible um, factor in calculating their taxes. Okay. So again, there are there are avenues where people can actually come up with some legitimate deductions. But again, I, th- I think one of the things that most people have to be concerned about, of course, is getting too aggressive. And I, I'm pretty sure that that's one of the things that people face. They just automatically consider that they should be able to write off more, but really there's a gray area there, isn't there? Uh, absolutely. And it's something too that we caution people with, just because perhaps we normally see 
as a home office, kind of that 10 to 15% area, it doesn't mean that legitimately somebody couldn't have a 30% or higher um, space there. But is it worthwhile going after? Or all of a sudden, perhaps they're renting one of the rooms in the house and now they're using that as a rental uh, in a, a smaller capacity. And they think, well, I've got three bedrooms. I'll rent one of the bedrooms out. Well, maybe I should also rent out the basement. Maybe I should create a suite. Maybe they keep bringing it one yep. step further and they get out of control. Sure. No, I, I understand. And so, folks, you, uh, you're listening to George Dubay. He's my guest here on Simply Real Estate. When we come back after the break, we're going to ask George more about investment properties as well and find out what kind of write-offs that you can get and when should you incorporate when we return. This is Simply Real Estate with Todd C. Slater on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Now, more of Simply Real Estate with host Todd C. Slater on News Talk 1010. And welcome back to Simply Real Estate. I'm Todd C. Slater. Joining me in the studio today is George Duby, and he is from BDO. Uh, he's a CPA, CA. We're talking about taxes, doing your accounting on your real estate. Of course, George, thanks for giving us some good information because a lot of people, first of all and foremost, you know, they're always looking that if they can save some tax dollars, that would be a wonderful thing. And in your principal residence, there's only so much leeway. Um, you know, you were, you were very, you know, upfront about, you know, percentages and what people can look at. So just to kind of, you know, uh, put everything together, basically when you own your own home, if you're running a business, there is a little bit of leeway there, but it's always good to deal with a professional like yourself and talk about percentages. Is that right? I, I think so. There's not necessarily a section of the Income Tax Act that precisely defines what you can and cannot do. It's looking at it from the more of that experience level and saying, in this situation, this appears reasonable and it's going to help you meet your objectives. Right. So I guess everybody's unique, of course. And again, keeping keeping in mind that we, you know, we obviously want to stay within the rules and regulations because nobody wants to go through things such as audits. Now let's 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 skip over to one of my favorite topics, of course, which is investment real estate. And you know, as you know and and I know, over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen a lot of people jump into the investment real estate market. But I think some people probably have the wrong impression that they think as soon as they own an investment property, they can write off absolutely everything. So, you know, let's go buy a BMW because I'm a real estate investor. What do you think of that kind of stuff? I, I mean, I, I certainly support the idea of trying to identify deductions now that all of a sudden you are investing that you may be eligible for. And I agree a thousand percent with the idea of trying to be creative with it to see what may qualify as compared to what's necessarily written on a standard form of standard deductions. But unquestionably, some people take it to uh, a little bit too far. And, and that's where that advisor is hopefully going to help rein that person in and show them that uh, aiming for long-term objectives is much you're much further ahead as compared to that short, quick tax deduction. So, George, if um, if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, can you tell us what your email address is so we can they can turn around and send you an email, perhaps? Uh, absolutely, it's gdubie d u b e at bdo dot ca. 
Okay. So, folks, if you're listening right now, you're listening to George Doobie. And again, we're talking about, you know, tax structure in investment properties and what people can write off. And so, George, my, my natural, you know, I always get a chuckle over this because, you know, I've had people come to our seminars and, you know, they're driving a fancy car and they say, listen, you know, I own an investment property, so I get to write it off. Of course, that's probably stretching the limits, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. With, with the investments, again, the Income Tax Act is relatively broad, if you will, and it says something to the effect of, thou shalt deduct whatever you want to, provided it was for the purpose of earning income from business or property, unless there's some exceptions or other rules that say otherwise, which of course is what predominantly the Income Tax Act does, is limit those. One of those large limits, if you will, is one, being reasonable, and two, the catch in that sentence that I paraphrased is, was it really necessary for you to have the BMW to invest in that $100,000 property? <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and I always kid people because when, when people come to our seminars, I always say, listen, you know what, you're never going, if you buy one of our investment properties, you can't you can't get a Ferrari from there. And and it doesn't make sense. But when we talk about people that are becoming real estate investors, and, and again, you and I know there's been thousands of these people that have jumped into the marketplace, I think a little bit blindly, because they haven't done necessarily their homework. What are things that, you know, definitively things that people should be looking at writing off? Things like interest, um, things like, you know, lawyer's fees. What what can they look at? What should they know is on their checklist? Here, there's going to be basically an analysis. Where are you spending your money? And was that necessary for the investment? So as you said, I mean, interest expense, property taxes, utilities are going to be the big items. Repairs and maintenance can be significant. And the little trick there, if you will, or a catch is, was that really an immediate expense or should it be considered a capital item and therefore deducted over a period of time? So for example, if someone were to uh, paint a room, put some carpeting down for a, that's more likely to be reviewed as a repair, whereas you're adding an addition, you're, you're finishing a basement, much more likely to be considered a capital addition to the property. So um, by definition, if we're saying capital improvement, um, what kind of time frame can people actually write that expense off of? Are we looking at two or three years or can you know, do they have to take it out to five or ten years? Most areas of the Income Tax Act are going to require actually what we call a declining balance method of depreciation, which in English means that we're going to take a percentage of a lower, lower amount. So if, for example, we started off with a, a building that was $100,000 in the first year, assuming we were allowed to claim um, capital cost allowance or depreciation, we're typically going to have 4%, but in that first year, it's going to be half that. So now we're going to take up to $2,000 of capital cost allowance. The following year, we're now going to take 4% of 98000 So we're always taking that declining amount of percentage. Right. So in theory, it's an actual infinite amount of time before we've depreciated most assets. Okay. And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Simply Real Estate. I'm Todd C. Slater and joining me is George Doobie. And we're talking about obviously now taxes and investment properties. And I know, you know, George, I talked to, uh, you know, quite a few accountants and, you know, I've had a lot of conversations in the past and I always say, boy, accounting's exciting. You know, I'm sure sometimes some of our listeners are going, well, that's really, but folks, this is the one avenue that I have to actually impress upon you is so important as a real estate investor 
you need to either hire a professional like George or make sure you do your homework because, you know, we talk a lot about investors getting to know and being educated in this field, but the taxation part of it is so important. It's going to create longevity. And George, when we create longevity, you know, one of the questions that a lot of people say is, should I create my own corporation to buy investment properties? Is this a good idea for people? It's a fantastic idea for a lot of people. It's an exceptionally poor idea for others. So it's something where you cannot provide just a a boilerplate solution or answer to say, yes, all the time this is going to be a wonderful idea. And it's also something that's going to go far beyond just the tax side of things. There's going to be an evaluation of what's important for you from a legal perspective, a financing perspective, an area that I call flexibility, meaning are you creating more opportunities that are worthwhile in order to pay yourself or other family members in different ways, add investors, subtract investors, typically family members, but also non-family members. So if you're going to give advice to our listeners then, so who who is a candidate? Is it is it the fact that you're, you you know, if you own multiple properties, you know, should it be, is it better or make more sense to own multiple properties when you create a condominium or should people actually do it even with one? Here we're going to, I would suggest more want to look for where would someone like to be three, five, 10, 20 years from now where someone is looking to, for example, again, acquire a couple of hundred thousand dollar buildings from a pure tax perspective, exceptionally unlikely that a corporation is going to be worthwhile in most cases. Whereas somebody has zero properties, but they're looking to acquire a number of properties over a reasonable period of time. Well, in many cases, I would suggest it's better to start off with that corporate structure so that down the road we don't have to quote unquote fix it and incur a significant and additional number of costs just to transfer that personal property over to a corporation. So if we know we want to end up there in the first place, maybe it's better to get there right at the beginning. Great. Because that's great advice, folks, is that if you're going to start the process, if you've done your homework and you've set your goals, and you know you're going to own multiple properties, and there's a definitive thing that you want to do with them in the future, as George has given us some advice here, out of the gate, perhaps it's better to start. Because, George, people will incur things such as, you know, transfer of, of, of title, of course. There may be some land transfer tax involved. And, of course, you have to deal with your mortgages. And so if you're doing that, you know, if you do it at a later date, it can be more costly. Uh, absolutely. And then there's also that cost of um, Revenue Canada looking over your shoulder and saying, congratulations, you've sold your property to the corporation at fair market value. And you're either going to pay tax on that amount, assuming the property is appreciating, or alternatively, you're going to turn to your accountant and your lawyer to help put together an election for Revenue Canada. We call in slang terminology a rollover to say, hey, dear Mr. and Mrs. Revenue Canada, we've sold the property, but we pleasantly declined to pay tax at this time. Folks, we're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with George Doobie about that tax structure. So stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Simply Real Estate with Todd C. Slater on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Now, back to Simply Real Estate with Todd C. Slater, In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. And welcome back to Simply Real Estate. I'm Todd C. Slater. Joining me is George Doobie. He is accountant, CPA from BDO, and we're talking about 
investment, real estate, taxes, implications. George, I got a pretty good impression that if I own just one small investment property, probably going out and leasing the greatest newest BMW is not a good idea. Um, but that said, you know, all ser in all seriousness, there's a lot of things that I think people um, should have a better understanding when it comes down to taxes and their investment properties. Do people typically, when they own an investment property, do they file it as they do on, with a regular income in the spring? If they personally own the property or alternatively through a partnership, then they will, uh, as a component of their normal annual personal tax return, there'll be separate schedules just for the investment properties themselves. So it's all integrated into that. Whereas with a corporation, uh, the filing could be just about any time in the year. Or, and there's also some other investment structures that can have alternative periods. Okay. So, folks, if you have any questions regarding taxes and where you're looking for somebody that is very dynamic, um, one of the top people in this industry in Canada, George, what is the, uh, what's the email that they can, they can get you at? They can reach out to me at gdubee, D-U-B-E, at bdo.ca. Okay, great. So, you know, one of the things that I've noticed a lot is that when people are, again, you know, we talk a lot about taxes, but I think we need to talk about general accounting because when people try to get qualified for mortgages, it's very, you know, advantageous to have all your ducks in a row. Where, what should people be looking at when they're showing up at a lender? In terms of showing up at the lender, I'm going to suggest they should be thinking beforehand and going to the lender, hey, how, how am I going to organize all of these records, all of what I'm trying to convey, not just to the lender, but also Revenue Canada? And, and that's getting a handle on their accounting system, if you will, and their information system beyond the, the pure tracking of miscellaneous receipts and invoices, if you will. Well, you know, one of the things that we've noticed over the years for for actual investors trying to buy properties, one of the things that people want to know, obviously, if there's a lease in place, they need to have a, a record of being paid monthly income. So the monthly the monthly rent that everybody's getting paid, because again, a lender themselves, they have to have verification, of course, that this is an income generating property. Correct? Absolutely, absolutely. So if you're going to if you're going to give some uh, you know friendly advice to some of our listeners, if they're first time investors, okay, is it better for them to, you know, again, meet with somebody like yourself, you know, get to know the facts before they start the process? Or do they show up saying, hi, George, we just bought a property. Now, what do we do? Certainly, we get both varieties, if you will. Our, our preferences, I'm sure you can imagine, is that we're able to chat beforehand a little bit. And it doesn't mean that it's a, a long drawn out process. But Often people will find if they're steered correctly in the first place, they're going to save themselves a lot of stress and be more effective as time progresses. And it can be, relatively speaking, a painless exercise, provided it's being done correctly. Okay, so there's, um, there's going to be a big monkey in the room with a lot of people that are doing speculation. And, you know, we talk about capital gains, but when people assign a property, so they, you know, they commit to a builder to, uh, you know, five years ago, George, and they're coming up on their closing, but yet they have somebody that wants to buy their contract. Are they paying capital gains on that money or are they paying income tax on it? Because technically they never took title. So for, for clarity, can you, can you let our listeners know a little bit about that? Yes. And here's one of those, it depends. 
So the vast majority of cases, it's more likely to be considered that this is going to be on account of income. In other words, Revenue Canada or courts, for example, would be under the impression that when the person initially acquired the property, not necessarily take possession, but started going through the exercise of signing the documents, put down their deposit, etc. What was their intention at the time? Was their intention to live in the property? Was their intention to lease it and hold it for a longer period of time? Or was it to sell it? And if that purpose was to sell it, much more likely it's going to be considered income. And now with that, as you indicated, not really taking possession or a very short ownership time period, Revenue Canada looking back in hindsight is going to look at it and say, hey, wait a minute, the the facts or what's really happened does not support the idea that you were trying to live there. Show us some reason that your primary intention was frustrated, for example. Okay. So, you know, the, the bigger picture, of course, is that when we talk about capital gains, for the people that perhaps buy an investment property, hold it for a year and they sell it, you know, again, this is this is that point, was, was it intentional, of course? Was it intentional that they were going to hold it for a year or did they just, did life happen and they had to sell it? So for, does that make it capital gains or the increase in the value, does that make it, again, a taxable income? Because the two of them are not taxed at the same rate depending on your personal income, is that correct? That's right, in that a capital gain will be taxed at 50%, if you will, so half of that gain is taxed. In terms of the actual tax rate, that will depend if personally held on somebody's marginal tax rate or tax bracket, whereas if it's in a corporation, it's going to be more of a fixed rate, if you will. Okay. So, you know, folks, really good stuff because, you know, it's so important that when you are looking at real estate, you have to understand not just financing, not just tenants, but actually the tax implication. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Simply Real Estate. I'm Todd C. Slater, and my guest today is George Doobie. George, I'm kind of hoping that you're going to be able to come back because, you know, some some different weekends, we have and host call-in shows. And I think that a lot of our listeners would be really interested in actually picking your brain. But of course, if they can't call in, if you're not here at the time, your um, your uh, email address, if I'm not mistaken, is g uh, dot doobie at bdo.ca. Is that correct? Uh, no dot, just uh, gdoobie. Gdoobie. Okay. You know what, folks? I always do the thing because everybody knows that it's Todd C. Slater, but if you look at it, it's dot C. So, <laughs> all right. So gdoobie at bdo.ca. And George, you know, just to kind of, you know, clarify a few, few more things. Um, Smith Maneuver. Okay. It's one of those things that a lot of investors will read in books. Do you want to give us a little bit of a Coles note version of it? Sure. The, the Smith Maneuver is a concept where you have, if you will, your personal residence in most cases, you have a mortgage onto it, the interest of which is non-deductible. Let's assume there's no home office or anything of that nature. And through the Smith Maneuver, the idea is how can you convert that interest expense, which is non-deductible, into something that's at least partially or ideally over a period of time fully deductible through a, a series of steps in the sense of putting onto that uh, house a line of credit. So you have now two components, what I'll call the good mortgage and the bad mortgage. It's actually a good line of credit versus the bad mortgage, meaning non-deductible, where you pay down the bad mortgage, more principles available or borrowing capacity on the line of credit, then that line of credit is used to invest in what we'd like to invest in real estate, but it could also be mutual funds, things of that nature, 
primary exception. It's not going to be an RRSP or TFSA. So it has to be something that's ultimately going to be taxed. And as you're investing more and more into that real estate, now a larger and larger percentage of your total mortgage or total debt on your personal home is going to be deductible. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Is it something that, that you can you advise people to do if if possible? Does it make sense? Is it sensical? It, certainly, I do it myself, for example, and we do advise uh, the majority of our clients where it's practical to be aiming for something of that nature. And again, many different ways of accomplishing that, but it should be, again, in my mind, something that over time, wherever you're incurring non-deductible expenses, how can I make those deductible while being uh, within Revenue Canada's rules? Okay. Well, excellent. Anyways, folks, I'd like to thank George Duby for coming in today. George, thanks so much. I hope that you'd like to come back, of course. Absolutely. This is fantastic. Excellent. Well, you know what, folks? Again, if you want to reach out to George, it's gdubey, D-U-B-E, at bdo.ca, and you can get some questions answered. And I have to tell you, if you're going to be an investor, make sure you do your homework. Now, you know, we'd mentioned that we're going to talk just a little bit about getting your home ready for sale. And, you know, it takes a lot more than just a couple of minutes on a radio show to do this. But let me give you some advice. Before you list your property, make sure you investigate who it is that you would like to have list your property. Don't just, if somebody shows up at your door and say, hey, I'll list your property. You know what? Do your homework. Make sure that you're going with a top producer, somebody that's going to commit to doing a lot of work, meaning advertising, homework, staging, whatever is necessary to get your home ready. The best thing you can do, of course, is make sure you look at least three people. Interview them. Make sure you're comfortable with them. This is one of the biggest transactions you'll ever do in your life, and you want to have confidence in the person that you're dealing with. Now, again, you're going to be given a lot of information. Take your time. Don't try to sign something right there on the spot. Do your homework. Know the value of your property. And then next week, when we come back with our show, we're going to be live. And I'm going to take your calls, but I'm also going to talk about some of the things that you need to do to your home to get it ready. Now, when we take a look at the marketplace, it continues to chug along. What's going to happen in the next, I don't know, six months to a year? We might see interest rates go up a little, but I don't see them skyrocketing. But what I can promise you is if you're thinking of selling and your timing's going to be the spring, throughout the winter is the time to get your home ready. Take your time, do the decluttering. Remember, if you depersonalize a little, what it does is it allows the would-be buyer to walk into the property and think to themselves, what would my stuff look like here? Now, you don't want to make it institutional. You don't want to make it look so stark that there is no personality because people also want to buy a home. And if they know that this was a home, then it makes them feel good moving their family into a home. You can sell a house, but people like to buy a home, and that's so very important. So remember, next week, we've got a call-in show. We're going to be live, so you can call in because we can't always do it every single week because we have lots to talk about. And one other thing I keep forgetting to mention, by the way, I've got a seminar coming up on November 26th at 7 p.m. It's the Simple Seminar. You can learn more about our newest release in the marketplace, $100,000 for an investment property. You've been listening to Simply Real Estate. I'm your host, Todd C. Slater. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Simply Real Estate with Todd C. Slater. In-depth radio, News Talk 1010.